Elon Musk did a, did a lot of work two or three years ago telling everybody like, hey, AI is going to come take over. Let's be really careful about this. And everyone's like, you know, don't worry. <laughs> like, who's that crazy guy? Just to give you an example, we, uh, we were coming up with a logo for our team and uh, we, we had a design person create a logo. We also had uh, an AI generator come up with a logo, but we liked the one that AI came up with better. And so, you know, in all these little ways, it's, it's slowly coming into our world and augmenting what we, what we do. So it's a, it's a question of where does that power lie? And do we want to lie in central institutions? Sometimes that's good. But at least if you have an alternative that's decentralized, you can have a check on those centralized systems that hopefully will give us a more egalitarian outcome. All right, Wes, we are so excited to chat with you today. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. No, I'm really glad to, to chat with you guys. It's a topic that's dear to my heart. So I uh, appreciate you guys having me on. Yeah, for sure. So I kind of want to start off just by talking about Web3 in general and kind of getting your your perspective on Web3. So uh, Wes, what does Web3 mean to you? The definition that I like best for Web3 is to say that it is all the benefits of older versions of the internet, except it's changing the ownership model so that the individual can own their own data, their own benefits from the data. They could be publishing their own data. And I think there's aspects of that that, you know, sort of uncouple and decentralize the existing components of the internet, the, the YouTube, Netflix, Google, the big, the big properties that we think of. And I think we're sort of just in the early stages of seeing what the technology can do. How, uh, how early do you think we are? I think we're very early, very, very early. And I've been involved in the space for maybe seven years now. But, mm. the, you know, it's one of those things where the technology doesn't go away. There's still people that are interested in this space, even in bear markets. And as long as the, the technology isn't going away and there's opportunity for it to innovate, there will be people that do innovate. And once they do... You see these new use cases come on. You see these new bull, new bull markets. So it's like, you know, if you were back in the late 90s for the internet, you would say, wow, we have AOL. We have like, I can check my sports scores online. Like, where are we? And then it's just, I, I think it's just going to be a new growth aspect of our lives in the next, in our future. Where do you think we are if we compared Web3 to cell phones? Like, are we in the carry case cell phone or are we in the brick? <laughs> or That's the a great way. <laughs> That's a great way to phrase it. Um, I My guess is that we're just after the carry case cell phone because how many people have MetaMask installed in their browser or how many people have like a Ledger wallet? Um, and that's a big thing, a big focus for venture capitalists right now is investing in, you know, better onboards and better wallets, better experience for non-technical people. Um, I think what we're seeing is we're seeing better applications be built. I think we're seeing better onboards, you know, to get more people involved. There was a really good stat by um, a lady. Um, it was like a it was a bond something report. It was a really smart um, uh, market analyst. Anyways, her her judgment was what portion of the day do people spend uh, of their day on the internet in some capacity over time? And if you go back to early '90s, it was it was small, and then it grows over time, and now it's maybe most or a large portion of my waking hours, I'm doing something on the internet. And I think a similar metric is interesting for what is the average person use involved in a crypto or a Web3 component? And how does that change over time? But I definitely feel like we're, uh, we're, we're closer to the, uh, to the, the brick phone at this point. <laughs> I wonder if there's going to be that like, that iPhone reveal moment like we had, you know, where like you watch that. And if you were interested at all in tech, you knew that like, 
everything changed after that. And I don't know if it's possible in Web3 just because it's like that was like literally giving the like making the internet accessible to everybody. So I wonder if we'll have something like that happen. That's a great question. No, you're right. And those sorts of turning points are so interesting because, you know, like one way to reflect on that moment was that the iPhone was such a big turning point for the internet and it was a big turning point for mobility. Both of those things existed before, but I don't remember people before that, let's say five or 10 years before that saying, um, Steve Jobs is likely to be the big catalyst for mobility in the internet. He was powerful in PCs and things like that. But there's, it's like you have to give some credit to what is difficult to forecast. And I think in this space, it's equally difficult to forecast who that person is going to be and what's going to happen. Yeah. But but the potential, the potential is there if you, if you think about the upside for users and taking friction out of existing systems. So, so yeah, do, we're on some kind of path like that. Yeah. Do, <laughs> do you think it might be a technology like Sean was saying with the iPhone reveal? Or do you think it might be like a, like a movement, like a, like hmm. a mass of people? It's a, it's super interesting because the technology will continue to evolve. And I think there's a lot of room for new technical use cases, new ways that we interact with Web3, whether it's, you know, our finances or social media or the way we consume, consume media generally that could be better enabled by Web3. There's always been in the, the crypto and Web3 communities, this ethos of, um, especially older, going back to the older Bitcoin communities, the earlier adopters, this thinking that Web3 and crypto-enabled economics are more resilient than some of the centralized systems. If you think about like fiat currency systems or um, let's say uh, regulatory systems, that they have sort of a brittleness to them. So if we saw major changes in like the structure of, of global economics or those systems, and crypto economics were able to take their place. Sort of similar if you look at the um, the organiz- some of the countries in, in the third world where they've their currency has been hyperinflated, and mm-hmm. crypto has been able to come in as sort of a more stable, although it has its own stability issues, but a more stable currency in its place. If you see those sorts of things happening, then I think you see more of a cultural shift in a bigger way from the technology, and you see people adopting crypto not because it's fun or it's a cool new technology, but because it affects their livelihood. Mm-hmm. So you said you got involved about seven years ago. Um, tell us that story. How did you get involved in in crypto and then eventually uh, Web three? Yeah. So it's um I it, it's such a funny thing because uh, being having a background in, in computer science and programming, past ten years I was spending a lot of time in enterprise technology, data analytics in that space. And so I feel like the only people I knew of at the time that were talking about Bitcoin or interested were either economics folks or they had a computer science background because the premise of, of crypto seems very difficult to believe at first. The idea that you could have any trust in a, in a math or a, a computer system that doesn't have a centralized authority. So it was very interesting for that perspective. And I remember uh, emailing my wife, uh, this is like 2014, and I was like, honey, I think this is a really good time to, uh, to buy some Bitcoin. And, uh, and she was like, she was like, that seems like a lot of money for pretend internet money, <laughs> a lot, of, a lot of costs for pretend internet money. And so, um, you know, so I was like, okay, well, we'll just, we'll just check it out and get into it. And so we kind of started dipping our toes a little bit. And, um, and so I was always passionate about it. I remember being on a podcast in 2015, uh, it was a guy named Trace Mayer 
was the host and Vitalik Buterin was a guest and he was talking about this new platform he was going to build and it was going to be a world computer and it was going to be this you know new platform to do smart contracts and I thought like it's it's really ambitious but it's almost too ambitious to <laughs> to work so that was like my first of many like uh un, you know like um uh, doubt doubtful moments in, in crypto which I've since sort of like learned from uh, but eventually I got into mining and that whole space. And so I had this like one life of doing enterprise uh, technology in this parallel world of, of trying to support crypto however I could um, until uh, this past year when I decided it was time to finally make the jump and working in crypto and Web3 full time. That's awesome. So what um, what were you doing um, just before you jumped in and, and kind of what was the catalyst where you were like, you know, it's time I'm doing this. We're, we're going into Web3. Yeah, before I jumped into Web3, I was continuing to work in uh, startups. I've worked, spent a lot of my time in startups related to data management or cloud technologies. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a thrust, it's a, it's a thriving, robust space. But um, there was also these criticisms. There was a, a person named Moxie Marlin Spike. And Moxie had floated this blog article that was widely read, which was basically making a criticism of Web3 saying that it's mostly DeFi and JPEGs. Uh, you can't do real work on it. You can't do real compute. You can't host a website on Web3 yet. These, these sort of like, it's like, it's not ready for prime time. But having spent time in the Ethereum ecosystem as a miner and appreciating what it could do, and then having a background in enterprise technology, knowing what developers want to see in enterprise technology, I think that there is a future where people can bridge the two. And it's not going to look exactly the same as it did in the past, but it's going to enable you to get some of the best of both worlds. And I really wanted to be a part of the group of people that were building those fundamental technologies. And, um, you know, there, there are, I thought there were going to be new use cases. I think social media could be rebuilt in, in better ways. I think um, there's other industries like um, uh, media streaming and things like that, that, that can empower the individual more. So I don't want to necessarily build those applications. It's not my strong suit, but I like building infrastructure that people can build on top of. And um, and so I, I decided to make the jump. I, I didn't have a job lined up. I wanted to just build a project from scratch. And I decided I turned in my notice and said, thank you guys, but I'm going to I'm gonna move into Web3 full time. And then booked a ticket to ETH Denver and started up a, a GitHub repo and, and started trying to build from scratch. That's awesome. Did, uh, did you end up building something for uh, the ETH Denver? I think they call it Build Week or build whatever the name of it is. <laughs> I did. I did. And I had so much fun. I, I strongly recommend anyone to, to, to go to that event. All the events in the, in the community are great, but that one in particular has a, a fantastic culture. I, I did sign up for uh, Biddle Week. Biddle, which yeah. Is that's the, what I mean. <laughs> which is the meme. <laughs> yes. Uh, and had a lot of fun with that. And I and I started doing some smart contract development. Um my, the premise was, you know, if, if developers are using AWS today to build um, to build infrastructure on EC2, what would it look like to build that in a more blockchain native way where the compute could be trustless and verifiable? And I started building it. Turns out it's very difficult to get in you know, from scratch. I, I was fortunate to do some grants work for Balancer and another grant for Aave and love those communities, Learned, met a lot of great people. And learned a lot about the DeFi culture and, and how all that plays out, and um, and, and ultimately ended up finding uh, a group at Protocol Labs, uh, back of y'all team, who are um, who are building compute over data and Filecoin and IPFS, and, and I've been able to build out a lot of the things that I was passionate about through this project. Yeah, that's really cool. So, can you kind of walk us through? You said that you wanted to build basically an AWS 
in a blockchain native way that is verifiable and um, I guess more decentralized. I can't remember the other word you used. Um, why does that need to exist? Like why do we have to, or why do you think we need those platforms in a blockchain native way that AWS can't do? Yes, uh, there's a there's a couple different dimensions of it. I mean, a, a couple dimensions just for conversation state to st to start are around uh, trust and security. Mm -hmm. So the first piece is trust. The real reason that Ethereum has product market fit is that I can put some value, I can put some asset into Ethereum or DeFi or a smart contract, and I do not have to trust that the person on the other side is going to honor our agreement the math and the programming all behind it, they enforce that that Wes is not going to lose his currency or that this smart contract and this uh, loan that I'm going to put on on a certain uh, smart contract is going to be, be validated. And that's a, that's a critical thing because up until now, any enterprise or developer would say, of course, I trust AWS. They're, they're a trustworthy organization and, you know, and, and that's kind of its, its own thing. But um, but in the Web3 ecosystem, if you wanted to build any additional applications that were more robust, like if you wanted to build a YouTube on top of Ethereum, you could not build it in a smart contract. Smart contracts actually are very limited in their functionality. They're, they're very powerful because of their public verifiability and trustlessness, but you can only do very small uh, logic operations in a smart contract. You couldn't, you couldn't serve a website out of a smart contract. So you've got the the um, the decentralization of Ethereum, which is very powerful. On the other hand, you have the centralization of AWS and all kinds of robust options for database services and development services and app services and all these great things. But really what, what developers want and the community wants is the best of both worlds. They want the trustlessness and the verifiability. Um, and so that's where I think if you're going to build these next generation decentralized science, decentralized social media applications, those developers uh, are going to need the best of both. So if I'm understanding this correctly, basically developers are building in Web3 and they're building because they want to build on a trustless platform and a, a platform that they don't have to rely on some entity or some you know business leader like theoretically controlling their stuff, their compute. And in order to do that, they have to use AWS today. So there has to we need a Web3 solution to kind of get that last layer of trust so the applications can be served. That's exactly right. Yeah, some people will use the term sometimes censorship resistance, which I think means more if you're in a, in a country where your government, it doesn't really prize uh, freedom of speech. You know, you may have to, you may appreciate blockchains more so for that reason. But that's exactly it. Uh, more robust infrastructure so that people can build out equally, you know, they can build out of Netflix, and they can build out of YouTube, but they do not have to, use the existing infrastructure. The other thing that's, that's I think, worth mentioning on, on this um, this topic is the economic incentive models. You know, if you think like, well, okay, why didn't somebody build a, um, a decentralized YouTube today? Well, YouTube is like, in some ways, the maximal version of what Web2 technology could be. It's very efficient. It's got great content. It's got great algorithms. But the value flows are really linked into the traditional fiat economic system. You, can, I, I just, it's, it's not advantageous for YouTube if I pay in micropayments to the creators. They have to take their, their cut, their margin. They're, they're doing a great job of what they're supposed to do. In this new ecosystem where there is no central YouTube or in the future where there's no central YouTube, there's no rent extracted. It goes directly to the creator or some maybe a protocol in some way, which the protocol itself is a group of people. You know, So 
So I think like that's the other part of it too, is that once you have crypto economic payments underlying everything, then you open up a suite of use cases that, you know, just can't really exist in a traditional web two system. So in that, um, in that economic model, you kind of just outlined, what would the incentive be for developers or for someone to even build that? Right. Cause if we're, if the goal is to, you know, we build YouTube so that YouTube can't take the cut. Um, why would somebody want to build that? Like, do they still get a cut and then it's just less or, or kind of what does that economic model look like for the incentive for people to build these things? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because um, I listen to uh, to comedians uh, on uh, on YouTube and they have great podcasts to listen to. And some of them are on Patreon and different things like that. Um, some of them, some of them have concerns about the amount of monetization that they get. And some of them have concerns about if they say something that's inappropriate at a certain period of time, it was judged poorly or in, in, incorrectly, they might be demonetized. Um so there's there's concerns, you know, about like who makes the decision of of what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, and, and, and how to monetize. Um, I think in terms of you know like monetization and payout, I think it's it's a it's an unclear future because there has to be applications to to, to determine what the the payments would be. In other words, if there was a uh, instead of a Uniswap, if there was a, a YouTube swap and it was the decentralized YouTube. Um, what cut would the protocol take and what cut would go to the creators themselves? The good thing is in that situation in Web3, you could have clones just like Uniswap had SushiSwap. People can choose which services they want to use because it's a very fluid open system. And so you'd have better competition in some ways. I mean, there's, um, there's, some, there's some discussion in the past about monopolization of certain services in and, and, and Web2 and, that, and you sort of you have established players in that, in that sense. In a very different sense, in Web uh, Web three so far with DeFi, you have a very robust economy of new DeFi protocols coming on. You have copycats, and, you, and then how much do people want to use the copycats? Do they trust the copycats, and so you have a lot of market forces playing themselves out. So I don't know what the answer would be, but at the very least, you'd have competition, which would hopefully seek for uh, a better price for the creators. Do you think? Do you think though that over time, like the competitive advantage is there's more players and so forth is like, are they net driving to zero? Like, are you net driving to zero cost? Do, do you mean competitive advantages for like creators in a Web three economy, or uh, or um, sorry, from like the protocol level, uh, right? So like you, you mentioned Sushi Swap, and then there's like there could be another clone of that. Now they, let's say they charge a percent less like for, for transactions. And then the next player, he does another percent less. Is this just going to be a game of we're going to have hypothetically like 30 apples and each apple that comes out is going to say our app store is 30% and there's 29. It just goes down to zero. Uh, like we're, how are, yeah, no, it's, know. it's a, it's a really good point because I, I could foresee that sort of thing happening in the scenario where you have open, open protocols, open software, easy, no cost to copy folks. But what's really fascinating that, that you'll see in the space is that the people, the customers of these protocols tend to prefer the established incumbents, even if that technology can be copied easily. Just to give you an example if you go to a site like DeFiLlama.com and you look at the market cap of the major um, uh, protocols in DeFi, you can see a breakdown of which of the protocols have the largest market cap. And it turns out that the older protocols that have been around for longer tend to have more market share 
Um, even though you could potentially get higher rates on the newer protocols, I think the customers have chosen uh, just sort of on their own to go for like, uh, not austerity, but like uh, sort of like a, a, a seniority, like they, they sort of uh, value that in some sense. But even beyond this, there's like these really interesting effects. Have you guys ever heard of the term uh, friendly forks in uh, in DeFi? I don't think so. No, I don't think so. This is to me like one of one of the, like the most fantastic innovations that could only happen in DeFi. It's basically a scenario where you have a major protocol like Balancer is one example I came across, and then so there's a, a new layer one. It's not Ethereum. It's a it's an Ethereum copy. One of them was called uh, Phantom, and it's similar to Ethereum, but it has some other properties around performance. And so this group of people said, we're going to copy the source code of Balancer uh, almost bit for bit. We're going to deploy it on this new chain, but we're going to consider ourselves a friendly fork. So we're going to give 15% of the value of this token back to our parent project Balancer. So we're literally copying your work, but we want to be uh, a good partner. So we're, we're giving you a share in, in the growth of this. And then you know, the parent organization balance and think this is fantastic our, our work is expanding we have you know some skin in the game with these folks and that kind of liquid ownership in the upside i don't know how you could have done that easily or quickly in a traditional system so you just see innovation happening at a much faster rate when when you had so I, I love the idea of friendly forks and i agree yeah that it would not be possible or it would be really weird it's almost like tipping like hey for every like dollar i collect here i'm always going to give you 15 percent, just like how they almost like force if you have a party of six or more at a restaurant but um right here so when you were talking about um uh, however like this might lead to some like economic uh zero-sum game you know where this, we're going to drive down to zero and you said maybe not so much so because we have these established players in this place um wouldn't that be another form of like re-centralization almost if they're still going to be so dominant yeah no it's it's a very good point because <laughs> excuse me there's definitely a meme there to be made about like, okay, we decentralized and now we're, we're centralized again. So, so no, I think your point is, is entirely valid. The only, the only, I think maybe lasting difference in the new scenario or the economic differences in the sense that, you know, in today's world, you have individual investors, individual ownership, you have corporate ownership, which is sort of different classes of ownership and different rules and regulations around that. And in this new model, you could potentially see centralization uh, around a given protocol, like in DeFi, as an example. However, the ownership in those pro and in, in those protocols is extremely liquid, and it's all people at the end of the day. So, I think, yeah, I think it's it's a very valid concern. Um, maybe the only upside would be that if there were issues with that sort of centralization, people could move immediately. Like if you saw the liquidation of like Luna and Terra, people drop it in the string of a hat. So, like. Or whatever success they could have had, you see an immediate exit. Um, and then at the end of the day, it's sort of it's serving individual interests rather than sort of a corporate interest. So hopefully that can at least, in a, on, a, in a, on some sense, help with some of the social ills of the existing like Web two approach. Mm -hmm. And Thomas, I think the the other thing is even though like one protocol may win, that protocol is theoretically decentralized, right? Like nobody actually, there's not like a single person, like even Vitalik isn't the one making the decision at, a, at the Ethereum right now. Yeah. Like he does have a lot of influence, but, um, but it, you know, in theory it's decentralized still. So I guess it really depends like how decentralized we want to get. 
That's it. And, and that's that's yeah. really a philosophy and a debate that, that rages on even the Web3 community in so many ways. Yeah. You know, is it decentralization for the sake of being a maximalist around decentralization? Yeah. And some people will say, let's kind of be pragmatic. Let's decentralize parts of it. But the other parts, you know, especially when projects are starting, they'll say we'll start in a centralized way and eventually decentralize. So it's really a spectrum, I think, for a lot of yeah. these projects. For sure. So yeah, tell us about uh, Protocol Labs and uh, Backlia. Yes. So it's it's been a, a tremendous journey for the past nine months. I've been able to work as a product manager at Protocol Labs and uh, really been able to get immersed in a number of different uh, spaces. There's sort of the infrastructure space around IPFS and Filecoin. There is a lot of things that we're trying to do around um, decentralized science. There's different use cases going after there, traditional researchers. Um, there's some work going after... Uh, regenerative finance and improving carbon credit markets. That's been a lot of fun. But the biggest goal for Bakuyao is, you know, IPFS and Filecoin have have really been, um, I would say, uh, foundational standards in the crypto and Web3 community. Um, particularly IPFS has a tremendous adoption across Web3 as kind of like the standard file storage uh, component, which Protocol Labs uh, had invented around 2014 with Juan Benet, our CEO. And so those storage mediums have grown and they've serviced a lot of Web3 use cases. But throughout all of this, there's been a desire to say, now we need to do compute on that data. There needs to be additional functionality. I want to run websites. I want to run analytics. And I want to do all these things with the same guarantees around trustlessness and verification. So actually, the, the term Bacoyao is a bit of a, a play on terms. We have uh, a lot of our leadership is Portuguese. And so it's a bit of a play on the term. If we're bringing compute over data or COD, uh, or like cod, the uh, Portuguese word for salted cod codfish is bacalhau. So that's how we we came up with our name. It's a bit Love of it. a it's a bit of a journey to get to the joke, but, uh, but hey, it gives you a logo, right? <laughs> right it does. It's, a, it's a tongue twister too. Exactly, Definitely tongue twister. Yes, yes, it is. And people don't forget it, which you know has has its benefits there. Um, but no, it's it's been it's been a, a lot of fun in the journey so far. So we we've been around for since January of this year was when the first uh, bit of code started. We are actively working on sort of a, a mainnet production launch in June or July of this year, which will have crypto economic incentives. Right now, if people go to backlyow.org, they can um, go into our docs. They can use our product. It's available for free. We want people to please use it. Give us feedback. We've got a Slack channel. We would welcome anyone's. Uh, you know, feedback about using the product. So that's that's a, a big part of my work there. The other part of my work is what we call our Compute Over Data Working Group. And so what's what's fun about this is we're trying to build a community. There are many other projects outside of Protocol Labs that are also building decentralized compute. And there's so many different types of compute that developers need. They need Lambda functions. They need EC2 style compute. We're doing batch compute. And so um, it's cod.cloud. If, uh, if people visit that site, they can um, they can see that we have once every two weeks we have meetings, we record, we post out about new technologies and shared problems. We invite other projects to present, uh, and then we meet up a couple times a year. So so we're busy with our own efforts building out Bakuyao, but we're also trying to build this as a community because it's so early that we really want everyone's sort of uh, you know to kind of raise everybody's uh, visibility in the space. So you're talking earlier about uh, economic models. What's Bakliao's economic model? Because it seems like the it, it, it sounds like a almost like a nonprofit. Yes. Well, you know what's funny is um, we we've definitely started with a lot of the the um, 
the common path in Web3 that were, were, were free to use software. But we are actively working on an incentive model so that people can come in with some sort of a, a cryptocurrency and they can pay for a job and it will happen in batch and those sorts of things. We're, um, we're very busy. There's a group inside. One of the things I like about Protocol Labs is that aside from just the project that I'm on, there's a lot of other teams that invest in research um, that's sort of far, far looking or sort of further out looking. We have a group called Crypto Economic, uh, Crypto Economic Research that does a lot of research on token launches and it maintains Filecoin tokens economics and looks after that. And they're giving us guidance about how we're going to ultimately launch some sort of economic model going into next year. But I think the other thing that's really interesting is that the Filecoin blockchain, the Filecoin virtual machine, is is it almost actually in February, it'll be launching a major upgrade to include EVM compatibility. So we'll have EVM uh, compatible smart contracts native to Filecoin. And then I think there's a good chance that we take advantage of that in some capacity. I don't know if there'll be a Filecoin or a Bakuyao coin or if we'll pay in USDC, but we're actively trying to figure that out right now. Codcoin. <laughs> Codcoin. I like it. Um, so, so what what can Bakuyao unlock for developers? Like, what's kind of the the use cases here of of how developers and builders will be able to take advantage of this? Yeah, it's interesting. the um, The leadership from our team actually has a history of uh, helping found the Kubernetes project at Google. Uh, back in 2017, when it first kind of came into the world. Uh, David Aronchik is our project director, Luke Marzen and Kai Davenport. They were involved in Kubeflow and um, all these other like popular open source projects. So everything that we do is very Docker-centric uh, for a lot of our workloads. So if people are used to using Docker containers for their workloads, they Dockerize it, they send it to Bakuyao, and they can run whatever they want. Um, I'll just give you, there's there's sort of a, a, a swath of, of use cases. One in particular, I think, is really good fit for Bakuyao is decentralized science, where there's this entire movement, which is really interesting, of, of people that are trying to improve the state of academia and research through, through crypto and, and Web3 technologies. But they are, uh, you know, those researchers do a lot of batch uh, processing. One good example, we work with LabDAO. LabDAO is a great organization that allows researchers to do wet and dry lab work, uh, but uh, enable through uh, crypto economic uh, technologies. And so, they're, they're doing things like metagenomic pipelines, processes that take 10, 15 minutes of heavy batch compute. So they can uh, they can send their job to Bakuyao. It can happen in a batch mechanism. But for other researchers, there, there's been a problem in academia around reproducibility. And I think during COVID, a lot of people saw the, the pluses and the minuses around transparency and access to data. So in this new scenario with Bakuyao, the person could say, here's my input data. It's all publicly available. Here's the processing that I'm running on it. And here's the output. So you don't have to trust my paper anymore and the results that I got to. You can see the results for yourself. It's all public. It's all verifiable. So there's just lots of philosophical and practical alignment that Bakuyao can help with those types of problems. Got it. So in that scenario, is like is the result then stored publicly on like IPFS or a blockchain. So any researcher can go and see like, okay, I'm reading this research paper on CRISPR. Here's their output and I can just see it. Yes. Yes, that's exactly right. You can see it and they can start from that person's research, which what's funny about, you know, from a developer perspective, we all go to GitHub and if someone built a great project and I want to build off of it, I just fork their project and I start from that night and I can, you know, so this is forkable research 
for the academic community, which is going to save governments tremendous amount of money from, you know, from their, from their funds. It's going to allow science to flourish more quickly. And it's going to allow people to publicly verify that the inputs and the outputs of any research were, um, were, uh, what they thought they were. How, uh, so, uh, how does this differ from if there was just like a one centralized, like a big nonprofit that just put together a, like a supercomputer and you did the same exact thing, but it was just centralized in one place versus decentralized. We just used either AWS or Azure resources. Like, well, how is this different than that? The thing that I've learned, so I don't have a background in research. I'm learning a little bit about the research community and how it works. One thing that surprised me, and I won't make this judgment across all of research and academia, but let's say uh, if you think about very expensive research needs to happen. Let's say it was a big piece of equipment and the equipment cost a billion dollars of, of nonprofit mm-hmm. funding to, to put together. The data yep. that's generated from that, the whole economics around that, the, the, the professor who asked for the grant or that ultimately worked on those sorts of things, there is an incentive for that work to be kept private in, in today's ecosystem. Uh, for a variety of reasons for their own credibility, if they're going to get published a new paper, if, if they just made all that data available publicly and someone else published for them first, it's almost like a proprietary enterprise use case in some sense where the data that is collected and the work that they're doing, they have to keep it close because it is their livelihood in many ways. So mm-hmm. if you think about a different economic model, like one good example is Molecule Dow, where they're saying, we're going to come together, we're going to fund researchers to go after rare niche diseases that are not being serviced by major pharma. And that researcher is going to get a a, a larger portion of ownership than they would in the traditional nonprofit or or university model. We're going to call it an IP NFT. It's actually a a pretty big Mm -hmm. legal innovation they're working on. So if you have IP NFT and that researcher is doing, doing that work that way, if they go and then do their processing on traditional like AWS backend infrastructure, that then is is sort of um, working within more of a closed and proprietary infrastructure that would inhibit the sharing of their information. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like putting like new wine into an old cask where if the community says, okay, great. Now we want to benefit from your research. We want to build on those sorts of things. Well, who do we give access to an AWS account? How do they get downloaded to it? Who's going to pay for it and those sorts of things. So these new crypto economic models for researchers also require crypto economic infrastructure for the system to flow smoothly from end to end and it's verifiable right like there's you you just you the the trust doesn't exist like it just it it is right like it's it's there and verifiable it is and especially i mean when you especially think about verifiability the other component that's a big part of it have you guys heard of this uh decentralized society paper that uh vitalik buterin and um, a couple other folks, uh, their names are escaping me, unfortunately, uh, put out uh, a few months ago. It was, it was very impactful in the space. It's called Decentralized Society. And one of the big outputs was called Soulbound Tokens. Mm-hmm. And the premise was, could you attach um, NFTs or tokens to people's accomplishments? And in the academic community, this is becoming a really big mm. uh, part of decentralized, me, decentralized science is to say, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna work in design and you're gonna produce some research, uh, there are projects like uh, OpSci in particular, and and also LabDAO, who are trying to say we're gonna give you a token or an NFT to to designate that you did this research. Yeah, it's actually verifiable now. You did this research. We know you did it. We're gonna have some traceability there. And there's some other folks like uh, DSI Labs who are bringing. 
the citation component, which was traditionally just all PDFs sort of referenced and issues with link rot with the traditional publishing system on chain so that you can actually see who did the, the work in the paper, what their, what their result is. One of the fun things about that is that the paper then becomes interactive. So you can click on the paper, you can say rerun my calculations. And so if all of these things are all sort of on chain and they're all public and, and web three, they're still, the ownership is still with the individual, but they're much more open. Then you also want infrastructure itself that can be launched in an open way. If you had to go somehow like create an AWS account, it, it would, uh, it would throw, throw some, some wrenches in the process, I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I know you're not like, you're not fully in DSA, you kind of like straddle it with everything you do, but I'm, I'm currently listening to uh, Codebreaker. It's about the discovery of CRISPR and Jennifer Doudna and really interesting book. And uh, I'm at the part where this is like huge patent battle of like who discovered what first, because there was a few labs around the world that all kind of figured this thing out at the same time. And obviously CRISPR is patent worth billions of dollars, you know, over a lifetime probably. And so there's this huge battle over who did it first, who submitted it first, who actually found it, like looking at lab notes and like who's signed the witness of the lab results. How could something like, like would something like that be different in a DSI world or because there's like such an incentive to want that patent, you know? <laughs> yes. Oh, yes, Absolutely. No, there's a couple of things. There's a really good conference I just got back from, and it was uh, DSI London. And there's going to be some really good content published soon from those talks. It was really well attended. It was it was a it was a big success. And one of the topics they talked about was pre-publication, which I think gets a little bit into what you're you're talking about, which is there's a lot of work going up into publication. Where does that work happen? Where do you, where does the evidence of it happen? And the the team I mentioned, DSI Labs in particular they are doing a really good job of enabling pre-publication to be put on chain so that you have linkages through IPFS and, and IPLD graphs to who was the who was the author, who were the other people that were supporting them, what were earlier versions? Because there's a, there's a thing that I didn't know about going into to research, which is this peer review process where you send your paper on to other folks to get it reviewed before it's officially published and things like that. So if you had all of those evidences on chain as just a normal, natural part of the academics publishing process, you would have tremendously verifiable data points to show who came up with which ideas along the way. So how is, um, explain one more time, like how this is trustless. Uh, is it just that you, you run the, whatever the algorithm or is something once, and then you, you have that proof that, Hey, this happened over this data set. And now another researcher, would they run the same algorithm again? Or is it just like, Oh, it happened once it's, it's proof that it happened, so it must be true. Well, what's so interestingly is that um, the thing that we're trying to enable uh, on the compute side is more of a range of trust because, I mean, to give you like a slightly parallel example, if you were going to use compute to generate uh, cat images, you know, through, through stable diffusion, AI was going to generate cat images, you probably would not care as much about the accuracy of that. Now, on the other side of the spectrum, if you were going to use batch compute to determine what um, what the proper you know chemical formulation of a new medicine was or a COVID test result or something like this, you would want it to be maximally verifiable. You want to see the inputs, the outputs, and everything. So in those those scenarios, there's some really good technologies. Uh, Wasm uh, WebAssembly is very popular. We're using that so that basically you can guarantee uh, mathematically that there was this input on IPFS 
This was the exact code that was ran, and this is the output. So you would not have to run the result again. You could just start from, uh, you wouldn't have to run the computation again. You could start from the result. But ideally, people can choose the the within that range based on cost and how complex their job is. Uh, because even, I think, within different aspects of scientists, the verifiability will, will matter more sometimes uh, and sometimes less. So if, 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 sorry, I want to challenge this because I, uh, I've been watching a lot of, uh, crypto use case videos recently that Sean got me started on. And so now I'm trying to adopt the doubter mindset. Um, uh, but, but so in the scenario again of like, Hey, there's this big nonprofit, they give a billion dollars towards building a supercomputer. There's no economic incentive, uh, to guard it. Like you were saying before. And they just say like, run whatever you want over whatever data set. We've got a billion dollars of AWS credits here for you. Mm -hmm. Why is uh, Bacleos just so much better still? And like, why, why can't that like exist or, or, um, even on the trustlessness piece of it, like why can't, why wouldn't you want to rerun that experiment that just happened versus trust something that's, you know, trustless? I don't, mm. That sounds weird. No, it's, yeah. a, it's a great point. I like, uh, what are the, Lex Friedman use the term steel man. Steel man, your argument. <laughs> Which is like, yeah. uh, which I, I love that totally everyone knows what steel man is now because of Lex and Chamath. <laughs> steel, man, steel man and straw man. I like straw that. man, yeah. yeah. Intellectually steel honest. I'll be intellectually honest with you about this. Yeah. No, I mean, so like it's 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 a very valid point. So yeah, let's let's dig in a couple like nuances there because you're right. All academia and nonprofits today are using the public cloud. They're not using Backlit yeah yet. So, um, so I would almost like kind of group this into different ver different areas of academia. So on one side, you have decentralized science, where it's a more natural fit. Then you have nonprofits, to your point, which are that, that group. Then you have government-funded research, which is kind of its own world. So on the one hand, I see, you know, government funding changing depending on the area of science. If it's, um, it's health-related and it's HIPAA, probably not going to be as public. It's probably not going to be a first adopter. They're probably going to stay within closed systems because they have a lot of regulation. That's perfectly fine. Um, other aspects of science. I went to the AGU Fall Summit uh, in Chicago this December, which is the largest uh, Earth and Atmospheric Science Conference uh, that's held annually. And it's all about space science and earth science and wind and climate change. Uh, NASA, it turns out, independent of, of, of our project, had declared 2023, the year of open science. So all their data, all their science is going to be made open. All the grants they fund are going to be pro open, open data science. So in some aspects of science, I think you'll see headwinds where the people that are paying for this know that we, I don't want to have to fund four people to do the same work. I want to, I want to scale and build off of each other. Um, so you'll see some benefits there, but I think there will still be many aspects of science that need the, the traditional closed aspect as well. And that's perfectly fine too. Mm -hmm. So, and we've touched on a lot of, of benefits and, you know, things that have to be figured out in DSI. Um, so for the question that I'm going to get from my dad, cause he's in the science world is how does DSI make science better? Like why should scientists and researchers care about this? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a funny one to ask, especially depending on the, how far into their career the scientist is. When I talk to scientists who are later in their career and they are, um, They've built, they've built themselves a, a real meaningful career. They have tenure, they're well-published, they have credibility. The system generally serves them well in a lot of ways. Uh, 
if you talk to younger scientists that are getting into the field and they're looking at what's in front of them, um, I didn't realize the um, the costs associated with becoming a scientist in terms of even when you apply for a grant, typically if you get a million dollars of a grant, 60% of it is going to go to the university before the 40% even goes to your lab. So there's a lot of challenges there. If you come up with some amazing research before you do the research, you've already signed away most of the equity ownership of your research to the university. So you might be getting less than 10% ownership there. Um, the publication system itself is drawing a lot of value away from the existing scientists. The, uh, the large publishers are... Um, have you guys heard of this? And I'm going to butcher the story, but it was a, a group out of Harvard that was doing a research study on um, a neurodegenerative disease. I'm forgetting the name of it. It was in the news recently in Nature. They recently did disproved it. Have you guys seen this? It was. I'm not uh, sure. It was, no, it wasn't. Um, it was it an was Alzheimer's a, or it was Alzheimer's. Thank you. Thank you. That's exactly what it was. I actually had a friend uh, from Georgia State who was uh, in the Alzheimer's research. He was telling me years ago. He was like, you know, it's it's tough because you can't get new research published in Alzheimer's uh, area because there's a few group of people in the Harvard group and then the publishers and the grant funders and they kind of have their own um, their own. Um, aspect of research and anything that challenges that is not not well received. So in that case, new research was actually inhibited, which was the detriment to humanity. It turns out that the seminal research that was done at Harvard back in the early 2000s was fabricated and it was a big to do in the academic community. If you go and there's a nature paper about it recently, it talks about how the the scans of the brains were just totally fabricated and no what? one reproduced it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a really big deal. Yeah, I uh, I think yeah. I know what you're talking about. I, I I think there's several cases of like huge like medicines that have been based on research that were wow. like totally fake, but they everybody cited these studies and yeah, built on top of that. That's it. That it was like amyloid proteins or something like this. I something, I'm, yep, gonna, I'm I think butchering so. it because I'm not I'm like I'm not I'm not a, I'm not a proper researcher. But this is just an example where. The grants funding uh, organizations are incentivized to fund novel new research. And then over time, I mean, I don't do a good job of this, but if you look at Balaji Srinivasan, there was a really good podcast on the DSI podcast talking about how science innovation has sort of stagnated and the average age of the scientific pro professor since World War II has, has flattened at a, at a, at a it's, they're like, uh, I'm using the wrong term, but it's, it's, it's an, it's a, um, it's, it's an older group of people that are sort of established in, in their field. So there's not as much challenging and, and, um, and new ideas coming into the space. Th that was their criticism, that they were better qualified to make. So all that is to say, if you have open reproducible science and you have an economic incentive for open reproducible science, then you you really improve a lot for the, for the scientific community. Maybe not scientists who are later in their career, but for humanity, for the grants funding organizations, there's, uh, there's some good that can be done there. If, if we're talking about the, the same thing, I'm pretty sure that it wasn't the like computation and analysis of the data that was fabricated, but it was the core data set. Um, and if it's not, then let's just even like stick with that example. But wouldn't, wouldn't you and almost in fact be enabling people to trust computations that could have fa happened on fabricated or unfabricated data if you're asking them to continue working on that data in a trustless ecosystem. I'm sorry. I'm like so much on the devil's advocate. Like I love no, this is the yeah. anti web three Thomas today. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> this is great. Actually, no. So I'm really glad you brought that topic up because I don't want to nerd out too much about D side, but this is a really good rabbit hole to go down. 
Um, so one of the things that we talk a lot in the DSI community and LabDAO is very involved in this, there was a group called OpenCell, which is that the majority of experiments today, wet lab experiments, you've got a pipette, you've got some chemicals you're mixing. It's, and this is a researchers telling me this, they're, they're properly trained. It's extremely difficult to verify and reproduce their work because there's so many environmental aspects that can affect what was going on. What was the humidity? What was the temperature? What was this? What was it that? So the dirty secret outside of academia is that most research is not clearly reproducible and easily reproducible. And even more so, if, you, if you're a scientist, you have, very, you have an anti-incentive to try to reproduce it because you're not going to get grants funding to say, I want to go do exactly what this person did before. The grants funding agencies will look at the- Especially with how much time it takes too. Yes. Yeah. If it takes you a year to do collect the data, are you going to take another year to do the next set of data? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. That is the state of academia. Even though people think of science as this sort of like uh, idealistic scenario, and, and in some ways it is. I mean, the gravity, the coefficient of gravity is gravity. It's not changing. But it, but much of other science is much more nebulous and it's people's best attempts to, to find truths in these difficult to reproduce scenarios. So to get back to your point, you know, DSI is not going to be a, um, a, uh, a, um, an automatic solution for these problems. But what it does do is when you bring more of that data on chain, you can start to track the metadata of science. You can track what was the temperature in the room? Mm. What was this? And, and mm-hmm. where were these people? Were they physically in that lab? You can keep track of all these things. You can put it because there's a whole other space of crypto, which is taking real world measurements, photographs, images, you know, for whether it's for like uh, war torn environments, third world countries and proving what's going on there. But those types of technologies can further reproduce uh, or enhance the, uh, the credibility of the science. So in a, in a surprising way, I, hopefully, eventually, it can lead us to a better version of science. Love it. All right, we'll move on from DSI. I know you told me you don't want to talk about it, and now we're uh, 50 minutes into it. <laughs> really went down it's, that rabbit hole there. <laughs> it's a good rabbit hole. No, I appreciate it, yeah. Um, an- another part of, of Web3 and decentralization that you've mentioned you're, you're in is AI. Can you kind of explain this intersection of AI and Web3? Because uh, now that ChatGPT came out, ev- everyone knows what AI is. And uh, kind of talk about what the that intersection looks like. Yes. No, you're absolutely right. There's been uh, there's been so much innovation in the AI space, and that's actually why I went to Google back in 2018. I was very passionate about what was going on with TensorFlow and all the stuff they were building there. But it's interesting to see that some of the more popular things like ChatGPT are coming from OpenAI, and and even the open source community, Stable Diffusion is doing some really good stuff. So um, this is a really robust area, both in terms of the big tech companies, but also in terms of non-big tech groups. And um, there's a really healthy movement. You know, if, if DSI is as mature as it is, there's a slightly earlier movement called decentralized AI, which uh, there's a lot of really good companies that are started in the space. If you guys look at together.xyz or nexus.xyz or pedals.ml, um, there are groups that are saying, you know, these technologies are extremely powerful. Chat GPT is still early days. There's going to be further advancement in that that's going to you know, change our, change our society in so many different ways. And so the question is, who gets the benefits of these systems? Who is involved in the construction of these systems for fairness and equality? In today's world, uh, to create those language models like ChatGPT, you really have to have massive data sets and you have to have so much compute power, GPU compute power to create those models. There's only three or four companies that have that kind of power. It's it's Google, aka DeepBrain, aka, you know, um, 
uh, their their uh, AI Google AI's teams. There's Facebook, there's OpenAI, Microsoft, and Amazon. Maybe you know that's pretty much it. So people are concerned and saying, if this keeps innovating in this way, how can we again distribute or decentralize the benefits of these technologies? And one group that we work with, a, a group named Algovera, they're saying, how can we empower the individuals to come up with these models around uh, around AI? How can we de- decentralize the data that it's getting trained on? And how can we decentralize the compute, which Bakoya would be a great example of that? How can we democratize and decentralize compute so that anyone could have a, an ownership share in the benefits of that model, could contribute the hardware to it. And so if AI is going to contribute to whatever pace it's going to be, at least it would be a, a more democratically diverse AI as opposed to a centrally controlled AI. Got it. So it's really a, a fight against the, you know, one company makes the best AI and only those people get the benefit and potentially the, the training data is just flat out, you know, skewed towards certain types of people or certain types of groups. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, what's funny is, you know, uh, Elon Musk did a, did a lot of work two or three years ago telling everybody like, Hey, AI is going to come take over. Let's be really careful about this. And everyone's like, you know, (laughs) who's that crazy guy. And now like we, just to give you an example, we, uh, we were coming up with a logo for our team and, uh, we, we had a design person create a logo. We also had, uh, uh, AI generator come up with a logo, but we liked the one that AI came up with better. And so, you know, in all these little ways, it's it's slowly coming into our world and augmenting what we what we do. So it's a, it's a question of where does that power lie? And do we want to lie in central institutions? Sometimes that's good, but at least if you have an alternative that's decentralized, you can have a check on those centralized systems that hopefully will give us a more egalitarian outcome. When you look at Web three, Sean and I kind of go deep and get a little bit too obsessed, I think, on like the tokenization and ownership. Um, and and then I know another piece of Web3 is like people talk about the metaverse. Uh, now we're talking about AI. Do you think that any one of these three parts where we talk about tokenization or ownership, metaverse and AI, that like Web3 is like all of these combined and kind of like an equal distribution, or do you think AI is like a much bigger one that we're yet to come across for this like web three movement? I think they're each going to, I think they're each going to move at their own pace. You know, it's interesting that like AI in fairness has had fits and starts over the past 10 years. You know, we had some tremendous advancements with, uh, with AI back in 2018, 2019, uh, with like Google Translate. Now it can translate any language immediately for you. And that's really cool. And that's kind of in their own space. And now you got chat GPT and everyone can use it. And it's getting to where it's going to be embedded in all these different things. So it's got its own kind of pace. Tokenization, I think, still has a lot of potential that we are just scratching the surface of. I mean, there's a there's a balance of staying within the laws of your local country to respect the equity laws that are in place. But then at the same time, enabling tokenization to empower more people that are not part of the current economic system. I mean, the current economic system does not serve all people in this society evenly in some sense. So there's the potential benefits there. And metaverse is really interesting as well. I mean, I, I love that people are using the term metaverse. Um, you know, what's funny is like, we're having a conversation right now over the internet 
and we're not in the same place. So I, I feel like we're in the metaverse right now, a version of the metaverse. Um, and maybe that'll only continue if I'm wearing my Apple visor in six months. <laughs> yeah, brick farm. You know? Yeah. So, so I think all those will continue at their own pace. Yep. I agree. Um, so I, we're somehow already on time here, uh, which is wild. So we're, uh, still early here in 2023 when we're recording this. So I'm curious to get your predictions for how you think this year is going to go, uh, in terms of web three and decentralization. Yeah, I, I think so it's, if I had to give a, a, a prediction, I think we're looking at, uh, are you interested like economic prediction or technology prediction or just anything? Anything. Yeah. We, we don't care about price quotes, though. Yeah. Not about like, price quotes. <laughs> but if, if you really want to, like, tell us a date and a price. <laughs> yeah, it only goes up. Um, for CODCoin. For CODCoin. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I think the thing I really like about this time of year, which, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an enthusiast, and people say build in the bear market, and that's true. The people that left the crypto space, you know, that's fine. There's there was some drawback after there was a lot of challenges in 2022. It was a lot of mess, a lot of centralized exchange, you know, mess going on. But the people that stay in the space are really trying to build good tech. And so what I'm optimistic about is going towards the end of this year, you'll start to see some new interesting use cases that weren't around. Like Lens Protocol is one of my favorites. It's doing decentralized social media. These all take time to build. And sometimes when you're in a bull market, it's hard to build because you're picking out your new Lambo or whatever you're doing with your crypto winnings. So so I think you're going to see people build some really interesting things. And maybe by the end of the year, you'll see some some price you know start to, to change to reflect that. But I think what's funny is whatever people are building right now, going into next year is going to be really amazing. And it's going to grab headlines and people are going to jump back in the crypto boat in a big way. So I think if people are wanting to get involved, this is the best time because you want to build credibility now so you can be a part of the, the future upside. Love it. Yep. I've, uh, I stang my lens profile uh, a couple months ago. I need to start posting on there. Do you, I don't know if you have one or not. Is there an, a certain app on lens that you like to use the most? No, that's a great question. I'm a newbie. Um, I've been using Lenster a little bit. Okay. A couple of posts there. I'll have to fo- I'll have to follow you on, uh, yeah, on yeah. Lens. I'm I think it's to... SeanCrow.Lens. Um, we could only I could only snag one profile, so I, I was like, do I get built on Web three or do I get my own? So I just got my own. I was selfish. <laughs> nice, nice. That's good cred. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I love it. It's like with Twitter when you look at and see like you know it shows the date that they first got on Twitter and it's like oh, yeah. okay you know something about you know yeah, they were in the beta <laughs> right. Right, right. No doubt. Awesome. awesome. Well, Wes, this was uh, this was great. Thanks again for being on the show. Likewise. Thank you guys so much. This was a blast and uh, appreciate you having me.